Hello, friends and listeners. Below the line, at least today's episode, is brought to you by a little project of mine called Magic Mind, the world's first productivity drink. Want more creativity, more flow, more energy, and less stress? Go to magicmind.co to get the two-ounce shot that contains 12 magical ingredients that are scientifically designed to improve your productivity. Along with CEOs, doctors, musicians, even Navy SEALs, I take it every morning and have been for about six years after a trip to the ER from drinking too much coffee day to day. And it is the single most important part of my morning ritual to do more and stress less. Listeners know that I go to pretty extreme lengths to talk about the science behind sleep, diet, exercise, alternatives to coffee, stress management, nootropics, adaptogens, anti-inflammatories, etc. And you can find the peer-reviewed research on the ingredients of Magic Mind on the site to learn more. Go to magicmind.co, that's magicmind.co, and enter promo code BTL for below the line to get 15% off and try it for yourself. I also wanted to tell you about MetaLab. You probably didn't know it at the time, but MetaLab has been the secret sauce behind products used by billions of people around the world, with a B, billions. They've been creating apps and products for over a decade with startups like Slack and Coinbase, as well as industry leaders like Google and Uber, and I have been recommending them to friends and founders of companies for years, way before starting this podcast. From delightful design to world-class engineering and everything in between, MetaLab works with teams of all sizes to sweat the details and build products that your users will love. I am a massive, massive fan of MetaLab. They are one of the only agencies that I consistently recommend and have been since my friends at Coinbase used them maybe six years ago and loved working with them. There are a lot of agencies out there, but if you're like me and obsessed with pixel-perfect products that people love to use, you've got to talk to MetaLab. Check them out at metalab.co. That is M-E-T-A-L-A-B dot C-O, metalab dot C-O. And when you get in touch, let them know that James sent you. And if you dig below the line, we'd love a review. It's how podcast platforms rank and suggest podcasts. So every review matters. And if you're one of the fine folks that have already left a review, especially all the five-star ones we've gotten, know that we appreciate and read every single one. Only takes two or three seconds, and we really, really appreciate it. So thank you. Hello, friends and listeners. Today's episode is a deep dive on the space technology sector. It's with a friend of mine and the founder of Momentus, which is a rocket technology company based here in the Bay Area, Mikhail Kokorich. He has founded five businesses before. So we could spend the entirety of the conversation just on his entrepreneurial experience, but we really focus it on his experience in the space tech sector, as well as what he is seeing as different different trends within the sector that is starting to attract more and more attention every month, really, especially with SpaceX's recent, recent launch. The first time a commercial private company has launched anyone into space That kicked off the interest in wanting to know more about this entirety of the space tech sector and and wanting to talk with Mikhail about what he's seeing in terms of trends. We cover everything from the current environment of of launching people into space by, by a commercial private entity with something like SpaceX to talking about 
everything from the communication side of the commercial aspect of space technology, satellites, to tourism, to mining, and even energy as a commercial side of the space gold rush. It's a fascinating conversation with one of the most fascinating entrepreneurs that that I know here in the Bay Area. I do want to let listeners know that there is just with this COVID era of podcasting where everybody is recording remotely, there is an internet lag, a very annoying internet lag in our conversation with the program that I used for the recording. And so if you notice a lag between question and answer, um, my apologies. I was just trust that I was annoyed by it as well. And uh, without further ado, let's get into it. With Mikhail Kokerich, this is Below the Line. Mikhail, we are live. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing. I'm doing well. What are you drinking on your side? I, I uh, told you to grab a drink before we got started. What are you drinking? Yes. I took a pomegranate kombucha, so. Oh, all right, pomegranate kombucha. All right, you know, surprisingly, out of all of the episodes in Crazy Drinks that have been on the episode, I don't think kombucha has been on here once yet, which is <laughs> very un-Silicon Valley, but uh, I'm drinking a super coffee, a protein MCT oil Ketu super coffee. Shake it up, it's a a little ready to drink coffee and i have heard a lot about it but i've never i've never had one before so i'm going to try that and see if uh if zero sugar naturally sweetened uh mct oil protein all right this actually would be healthier than than the coffee i make at home let's see i need to try this also oh that's good that is really good all right super coffee okay so the first thing we were chatting right before we hit record and and I said, okay, let, let's just save it for the podcast because I can't wait to get your your thoughts. But obviously, so Saturday's SpaceX launch is just un, unreal. And I don't even want to, I, I don't want to offer any color because I want, you are the expert in the room and I'm completely ignorant on, on where space innovation is going. And for listeners, Mikhail is the founder of, of one of the, I think one of the most innovative space technology companies in the world in the last two years, Momentus. I am very fortunate to, to be a, a small investor. I'm so glad you let me write a small check to join your round out, out of Y Combinator. But I haven't gotten your recent thoughts on anything, you know, SpaceX related. So I thought it would be a phenomenal episode, phenomenal opportunity to chat with you about where space innovation, space tech is, is going. And just, it's so strange, such a strange, con- strange contrast of this incredibly, I think, uh, a special moment in terms of technology in general that a private uh, space technology company in SpaceX is launching people into space on Saturday. And yet, I don't really know anything else beyond momentous of what's happening in the space in contrast to that that massive feat. So one, I want to get your thoughts on just the launch on, on Saturday. And then two, more deeply, want to go over what you are seeing in this space and, and what listeners should uh, start to pay a little more attention to. So start with, with SpaceX and Saturday and, 
any and all thoughts you've had from it. Yeah, these historic SpaceX Demo 2 crewed orbital spaceflight is widely and deservedly celebrated as a momentous milestone that gets the United States back in the crewed launch business and propel all of us into a new era of commercially-led space exploration. But it, it, uh, amid all these like worthy celebrations, it is easy to overlook that this accomplishment marks an epoch of renewed American leadership in space. And uh, it ushers into an the epi- space... An epoch of, of renewed American uh, interest in space? Yeah, tell me more. Leadership in space, yeah. And uh, this move us to a new era of Pax Americana, a peaceful space exploration afforded by American oversight and driven by entrepreneurial initiative. The difference is like that if you look how the space business and how the space exploration started in the 60s, it was initially the competition between the systems, the like, capitalistic system and the Soviet Union and the whole like a like the, the, the communist bloc. And then later after 90s, uh, after 1990 when Soviet Union collapsed, the Space was pretty small, still business, a little bit more than $100 billion. So comparing with, for example, aviation, it was like 10 times less. So the still government sentiments, like international collaboration, uh, the exploration was driven, like a, they, they, they were driving the, the way how space, uh, how space was, uh, uh, was doing. But now this is a, the, the main and huge changes that, now space it's not anymore only like a the place of this international collaboration romantic it's actually place of the business and if you see at major companies in the world almost everybody had somehow involved in the space business amazon with blue origin doing this project Kuiper with uh, uh to to provide the connectivity like a spacex and uh, google which financed this project apple doing something something like secretive like it's usually uh facebook what what would apple be doing in space we can only guess i think that they doing some space project that will provide connectivity to cars uh basically because we know that when the cars will be will become at least partially autonomous the cars will become the gadgets where people will start to consume the content watching videos, lessons, and then you need to have like a very strong connectivity. And this is a like moving object. You cannot have the fiber, optical fiber there. Why why was that why has there been kind of this uh, this 30 year gap of taking space exploration more seriously? I think the I guess the the public narrative is that you know once the Cold War ended, it wasn't just a Technolo- technological like pissing match of of how far can we can we explore and go but uh literally and metaphorically but is is that more or less the reason or is there more more to it of, of why we stopped to to explore space and and the in the 90s yeah because like in the 60s and 70s it was a real motivation for uh public actors like governments to invest huge money in space exploration because it used to be the arena of competition 
of the systems. And then when again like a, when the communist bloc collapsed and was like a no anymore bipolar world, the governments tried to find the new like idea behind it. And uh, I think International Space Station was the most, like, probably the profound, like, example of this idea, this international collaboration. But still, motivation for this is uh, weaker than competition. But again, now the main motivation start to be economical. So this, like, a gold rush in space. And the gold rush, it's a much stronger motivation because it created this, like, a unstoppable movement of ideas, of entrepreneurial energy, of money, of people. And yes, I mean, like a SpaceX and Elon Musk, he was a, you know, the, 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 like a prophet in, in this movement. They, he and the SpaceX created this, like the, the attractiveness of the space for, for like a private companies, for private investors. And, and was, was SpaceX 10 years ago, you know, was, did it have really grand gold rush commercial ambitions? Or was it from my you know, very surface level understanding, it was just, we got to get to Mars and commercially we're going to fund that as a backup to, to Earth and as a you know, potential collapse with the environment here on Earth. And, and we're going to commercially get there by building reusable rocketry for you know, satellite launches and things like that. Was there anything beyond those two bookends? You know... It's uh, it makes sense to look in a story like a, and the tale of SpaceX uh, demo two actually began in two thousand one. It was a time when thirty year old Elon Musk met Michael Griffin. And Michael Griffin he's a phenomenal physicist and aerospace engineers, and they two traveled to Russia the following year to negotiate procurement of the three repurposed rockets for use in the private mission to Mars, and. As the story goes, the party failed to reach agreement in price with Russians. And on the way back to the United States, Musk basically told Griffin that he would he would like to build this like rocket by himself. And when Griffin, just like a three years later, was sworn as the eleven administrator of NASA, he implemented a paradigm shift in the partnership between NASA and private companies. So instead of the government ordering the and owning the design of the space systems, like like as in the, in the space shuttle program, Griffin ordered, uh, he offered a model in which the government would procure a service and the private company would develop and own the space system. As a result of this, like a program started, the Space Orbital Transportation Service Program was announced in 2005. And SpaceX actually was one of the first world recipients. And this simplicity of this model shouldn't mask the conceptual brilliance because the, manager, the managerial efficiencies this program brought to American space sector 15 years ago, and now it's bearing the fruits like a SpaceX demo two flights, because uh, you you now like a, avoid like all this bureaucratic uh, snail paste, all, all these like a collaborators, and you just can make the relationship between the business and, and the government money very simple. And so it went from kind of a proprietary development to. A more maybe similar to how we would procure fighter jets or you know Department of Defense equipment. I think on the fighter jets, the Defense Department is actually kind of own design. Also, I think it's a more like a, the government just procure, for example, the transportation service 
for military forces from commercial companies. And uh, yeah, because Falcon 9 rocket and Dragon, like it's belong to to SpaceX. It's a SpaceX intellectual property. So the government just you know one of the user of the of the service, and this is a paradigm shift. So just to just to button up the the question around the '90s, you're saying that it, it basically was national egoism driven, and and then in the early 2000s, uh, SpaceX and, and Elon Musk specifically, along with Griffin, kind of revitalized it with a mission to to Mars as the vision, and then there was kind of, there was this this commercial uh, aspect in the years following. Is that more or less the the narrative arc yes um and 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 also like a kind of from economic standpoint for example space shuttle program failed because it was so expensive and finally not fully like a safe and reliable so when the space shuttle retired us didn't have a good answer what to do next and there was like a many years of us relying on a for example, Russian technologies sending people to to space, and and it was like a it was kind of not good for technologically advanced country. But but with the two thousand five, the first start of the COTS program, it's actually changed in a, in a, in a good way. So instead of addressing this in the usual way, okay, let's start to build another rocket, let's like a pull another dozens of billions of dollars and build other stuff. So US government and like guys like Mike Mike Griffin, they did a good decision basically leave Leo domain to private companies. And I think it was the smartest decision. It was like a done in space for the last twenty years. And what were the primary uses of, of rocket technology in in you know two thousand one or two thousand five? Was it just primarily to launch satellites up into space? Yeah, I mean like yeah commercial satellites to geosynchronous orbit. At that time, LEO business was not like very developed. Uh, definitely was some defense payload. And uh, also these human programs programs with the, with the ISS. I, I'd love to go through the, the gold rush or the commercial applications with you from a super high level. If you wouldn't mind walking the audience through what are the commercial applications to getting out of our atmosphere and what is beyond that. Um, we've touched on on satellite technology, which is increasingly, you know, that's essentially visibility and and connectivity to to everything that's happening here on on Earth. And uh, out of curiosity, how many satellites orbit the Earth at at any one point in time? It's um, uh, thousands of satellites. Last year, it was launched almost five hundred satellites to space. Now we approaching like more than thousand satellites launched every year with the, all these mega constellations so eventually it will be dozens of thousands of satellites but you know it's uh, interesting because even we have so many like uh, more different constellations and uh, different companies but we're still in the same paradigm of the space business as we used to be 50 years ago so still space providing communication, Earth observation, data collection, like navigation. And uh, don't get me wrong, this is a huge and important like businesses. 
for example, even with like a public service like uh, navigation signal, can you imagine the world without navigation signal, without GPS, without uh, Uber, without, without DoorDash, without without anything? You know, like people would <laughs> uh, would hunger. I mean, if you now uh, switch off like GPS GPS satellites or communication, it's also like a, uh, the space communication was the main provider of the TV, and now in a new world. Probably it will be the main provider of connectivity to autonomous cars. But what is the most interesting? What will be the next? What will be the application that was never like explored before? And what will be the new thing that can make the space industry trillion dollar, the big one? What will be the gold rush? And uh, now we can guess, and uh, I think it's a pretty good guesses. Uh, uh, yeah, what are they? Um, several of them. Uh, the Probably the largest business uh, in space in the next like 25 years will be the energy. And uh, because we have like in our solar system, the huge thermonuclear reactor, the sun, and the amount of energy that we get from the sun is huge. I mean, for every square meter, we get 1.4 kilowatts of energy. So for each square kilometer, we have gigawatts of energy. And... Uh, People don't think about this, but the same square feet of the of the surface in space get up to ten times more energy than on Earth because of the in space you can put an orbit where you don't have night, you don't you don't have like Earth rotation, so you can be always perpendicular to the sun, you don't have like the clouds, you don't have atmosphere, no dust. So eventually, the solar panels in space are extremely efficient. It's twenty four seven. It's produced energy all the time. You don't need to put any batteries. The only problem there was high launch cost. But when launch cost will drop uh, below a few hundred dollars per kilogram, and it's not like a, it's a changes less than 10 times. So as soon as Starship rocket from SpaceX or New Glenn will be on the market, we will be approaching these numbers even maybe cheaper. Then the cost of the production of energy in space will be so cheap that you will not be able to compete on Earth. Like nothing can compete. The problem is how to push this energy. Really, well, how far how far away do you think that is before we're able to harness it at you know scale that's useful to us, but also at that cost that it is you know incomparable. Yeah, it depends on a several technological disruptions. So number one disruption is a uh, launch cost. So when launch cost will be Below a few hundred, few hundred dollars per kilogram. That's number one. Second, definitely low cost solar panels or concentrators. It's another because space environment is a little bit different from terrestrial. So nobody was thinking how to make it cheap in space because in space you have radiation, you have like a, the problem with the arcing, the plasma arcing. Initially, people will use energy in space uh, because to in order to transmit this energy back to Earth, you probably need to put this. The solar stations high in orbit, it's more expensive. But if you fly it on a low Earth orbit, on a, in a special orbit like Terminator orbit, which 24 7 under the sun, you can use energy in space, for example, for data computation, because now data centers is one of the fastest growing consumer of the power. So it's like it's consumed like a few percent of the world power generation. It's how, it's how much computational power is, is how much of the, the world's consumption of power? It's a few percent. It depends on a country, but it's like between one and five percent in the different countries. 
And how would you get just and for my, you know, I'm a simpleton from Texas. What, how would you get the power from that space station or space, you know, accumulation entity into our energy and accumulation entity it back to Earth? No, I think initially, again, what I told that this energy will be used in space for data computation. Probably this is I the see. easiest way. I see. So you just send bytes, and this is a much easier than send energy. And in the future, when the launch costs will become cheaper, when you can put this like a further from from the Earth, like a, on a high orbits, when momentus will develop the in space transportation low cost for big volumes, then you can start uh, beaming this energy back to Earth with a microwave, like with microwaves to antennas. So it can be pretty safe. You can basically build a huge antennas on the ground in a, in a some you know in ocean deserts. I mean and and, and build this energy without any harm for even people coming through the antennas. So, do you mind saying that one more time? I, I think it's um, I'm struggling to put it together. So, what would be the connectivity to the ocean? This is fascinating, by the way. I've never I've never thought about this. Yeah, I mean, uh, at some stage, people would start beam this energy back to Earth, and the easiest way to do it, like uh, to beam with a you know microwaves. In order to receive energy, you need to build like a big antennas. It's called rectenna. And you can build these antennas in a desert or somewhere in, in other places, maybe in oceans, and uh, get this energy. And if you have large enough antenna, it will be safe even for people to be there. I mean, you can. it will not be like a <laughs> weapon of mass destruction. It will be a pretty safe way to transmit energy. But... It will take time. I think the transmission of the energy back to Earth will take more time than using this energy in space for applications in space like a data data crunching, data computation. Okay, so we've got satellite and communications, and we have energy. Energy, and then definitely like uh, people thinking about the using of extraterrestrial resources. Like um, initially, it will be uh, the water. Uh, from the moon, from asteroids, as a propellant, and then later it will be some precious, rare metals. It probably also will take like a, you know, ten, twenty years until this time. But this will be the next, next big like a gold rush in, in space. I've yeah, and I've heard uh, a little bit about this um, space mining. But do you mind, do you mind giving giving a, a broader a description of what you mean, especially when it gets to rare metals in ten to twenty years. Um, that are, these are companies that are being funded right now for it, you know, ten to twenty years out. If that's if that's the the time range you're saying, what what do you mean, and what is the mass of uh, of this for us to kind of have in our heads? Yeah, I mean, if you look in the history of the creation of the Earth, uh, you will see that actually because the Earth was hot and almost melted. So all heavy materials, it's actually came deep into the into the like like a nuclear and mantle of the earth. So it's not so many, uh, for example, rare metals in a crust, and actually most of them was injected back with a later bombardment when the earth experienced like almost after one billion dollars after one billion years of existence, the big bombardment from asteroids. But when you look on asteroids, these materials they actually stay from the beginning of the existence of solar system. So the concentration of the metals, the precious metals, rare metals, 
should be much higher. And we know this because we, we got like a meteorites. And uh, so it's interesting, but humans know about the steroids more than they know about the, you know, the, the floor of the ocean. Because we are getting this like, a, you know, uh, parcels from asteroids, the meteorites all the time. What do you mean? We know more about uh, asteroids than we know about the ocean, just in terms of the fascination with it and, and the ability to observe because there's far fewer things going on? Or what do you mean? We're getting meteorites. So the Earth is receiving every year uh, multiple like meteorites that actually many of them actually uh, heat the Earth pretty intact. I mean, you can find it, you can analyze it. So from scientific standpoint, we know about asteroids better than about some part of our Earth, especially like uh, the floor of the ocean. Right. Oh, interesting. What's the mass uh, or the, the scale of, of rare metals or, you know, precious things like I've, I've heard it's Millions. like an asteroid Trillions can have ten ten trillion dollars worth of diamonds or something. Uh, probably not diamonds, but you know, like a platinum, like you know, just like a precious metals. Yeah, I mean, I still think that most of the asteroid materials will be used in space at that time when we people start to mine it. They mostly start to mine it to build the, the like the solar power stations in space. You know, to build maybe human habitats in space. Maybe the space tourism will become popular uh, and uh, it will be trillion-dollar business also. Uh, we don't know. But we are waiting, we are in this anticipation of the gold rush. So now everybody looking and thinking, what will be the next huge business in space in the next 10, 20 years? Okay, so the scale of, of man, it sounds like I'm way off on the on the trillions of dollars of, of diamonds, but why wouldn't people bring this why wouldn't they bring those resources once they're mined down to Earth? It doesn't make sense to bring everything to Earth, but some very expensive things you can bring. Finally, uh, we probably will find a way how to bring it pretty cheaply because you don't need to have any propulsion when you bring back to Earth. You can basically just like a drop it and uh, make a controlled descent. But look at, for example, rare metals business now. Because the concentration of rare metals is so small in the Earth's crust, and mining of these rare metals is extremely difficult and extremely uh, high pollutive, like it's damaging for environment. Basically, only one country mining these rare metals now, China. And China provides rare metals for entire world industry. So... What if like, uh, it will stop to provide? So you basically, uh, all semiconductor industry will just basically die. Or you need to do this, start to do it like uh, in other places where it could be more difficult. And finally, even if it's done in China with a, you know, environmental impact, it's not good. So eventually, if we can do this in space, and uh, finally, in you know, 50, maybe 100 years to move all the heavy industry to space and basically leave Earth just for humans living living here. It could be like a big, big thing because I mean, this is a this is a jewel in the space, the Earth. So finally, we should find a way how to, 
avoid most of the heavy production here. Right. That's interesting. That's from energy to to manufacturing and and production of of things being in space 50, 100 years from now. That does make logical sense. I don't know if it makes logistical sense for the next few decades, but it does make logical sense. In terms of mining an asteroid, just the obvious question going through my, my head is, how the hell would you land on an asteroid? Do you mind explaining that to me? It seems to be like obvious answer to to people within uh, your world, but do you mind explaining it to me? I mean, nobody will land asteroids back to Earth. It sounds a little bit terrifying. I mean, land on the asteroid so that you can mine it. Actually, you are not landing to asteroids. You are docking with asteroids. <laughs> because okay. asteroid gravity is so small that basically you need a very small push to kind of land it and fly from asteroid. It's, so it's a, it's more like docking. And uh, okay. it's like a, people now developing technology, for example, for the water or volatiles mining. So the most obvious idea to get like a smaller asteroids, because when, when we are talking about asteroids, people think, okay, it's one kilometer, like one mile asteroid. No, it will be small asteroids, maybe 100 meters. And you can cover this asteroids with uh, just like some, you know, film, like with uh, some fabric and, for example, heat it and get the water out and mine it. So initially people will mine and will use much smaller asteroids. It's easy to manage, easy to to deal with. And is it logistically pretty simple and straightforward to to dock on an asteroid that's that's moving at? Yeah, what what is the speed that an asteroid would be moving through Earth? I mean, through space. I mean, the um, initially we will be approaching what we call the near Earth asteroids, the asteroids that orbit in the Sun, almost on the same orbits like Earth. To reach these asteroids, uh, it's easy actually to fly them from the Earth because we are living on the bottom of the huge gravity well. So in order to fly from from the Earth's surface to low orbit, you need to accelerate up to 8 kilometers per second. If you want to fly to the top of the gravity well, to, like, you know, close to the top, to geosynchronous orbit or to uh, escape trajectory, it's even more. It's uh, 12, 15 kilometers per second. depends what type of propulsion you're using. Uh, but if you need to approach asteroids and fly back, sometimes it's just like 1 or 2 kilometers per second. So it's so much simpler easier to fly to them and uh, fly back. It's much easier than, than, than fly from the Earth. It will be many technological challenges. Yeah, that does make sense. I think I'm just uh, maybe mapping to mapping to the movie Armageddon, where that was a big challenge of how to land on an asteroid. But mathematically speaking, technologically speaking, maybe it's not so hard. Um, okay, so we've got we have energy, we have communications with satellites. You've got mining. What are some of the other commercial aspects? Talk to me about tourism and and how big you think that that market would be for space tourism, and when will it actually get started? Because it feels like it's been like four or five years in the running, or in a row where we've been like a year or two away, a year or two away. When will that actually take off? Where just put a number on it: a thousand people, a thousand space tourists. Uh, go into space in a single year. How far do you think that is out? So as soon as the uh, price of the space flight will be down to a few million dollars, 
then it, it already will be the market of several dozens and maybe hundreds of thousands of the people who can theoretically fly to space because look at how many private jets or how many yachts belong to people. And people spend millions of dollars per year just to you know have it. So we have this early adopters of these like space tourism. It depends how fashionable it will be. Will it be like a cool, maybe not just Leo flying, maybe flying fly by the moon. Uh, but uh, even in a Leo, I always like to make an example. Look on the American football. How large market of the American football? So billions, like dozens of billions of dollars. Let's imagine right. that biggest one day sport, some, biggest sport in the country. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let's imagine that one day some sport in the zero gravity will become popular. <laughs> and people will make a fun flying city D rugby, you know, or American football. And uh, it will be such a cool like a sport that it can become like a next billion dollars like space sport. And uh, people will fly only to play it in a holy hell, I've ne- yeah, that has never entered my mind. Yeah, I mean, we don't know this, like, and uh, I believe it dozens of the people, dozens of different entrepreneurs thinking about it. So uh, as soon as the launch cost will be cheap enough, or when SpaceX will start to fly with a Starship or with a, another big rockets and other companies, then it can be next big sport. And, and it, it can be so much like a more visual uh, with the cameras on each like player. With a 3D, with a, you know actions, and what is beauty beautiful that you can basically in this case use like virtual reality to to be inside. You just can like uh, put the virtual helmet and and be one of the player and see it. And uh, you, you cannot even imagine how fascinating it can be. That is never yeah, like I said, it's never crossed my mind. One of my friends, Martin, he has put down the two hundred thousand dollars for. Uh, traveling in, yeah, you know, I think it's the maybe the um, Virgin, Virgin Galactic, yeah, mm-hmm. um, two hundred thousand dollars. I there is no friend that I have that that wants to go into space more, but he, it's just for a trip, right? So it'd just be going up for a little bit, doing a little zero g um, experience, and then coming back down. It's suborbital. It's just suborbital. Just orbital. What What do you mean? It's just suborbital. Suborbital. It's not orbital. Oh, so, so it's, it's not. Like it's not truly in space. It's not. I mean, technically, you are beyond this line, but you are not in a zero gravity for a long time. It will be just a few minutes, uh, which kind of cool. You can see the Earth from space. You can see that Earth, are, you know, spherical, and uh, you can experience the zero gravity for a few minutes. And for these two hundred thousand dollars, it's a good experience, but really like a disruption in even like a space tourism can be in a space because uh, people will find a way how to make the trip for these tourists exciting and uh, everybody like when when you've been a kid you 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 had like imagination what if you can fly like a like a bird and you can make a lot of like attraction in space you can put the wings and fly like a bird. You can swim. Uh, you can play the, some games. It can be extremely, extremely interesting and will be the one life experience initially. And then people just make a funnel out of this. I don't. I clearly do not think about this enough because it is a brand new world. What are the psychological implications for our society as we 
as we near this new age of of space exploration i what's going through my mind is you know we went from essentially viewing the earth as flat and the center of the universe to realizing it's round and it's one of <sighs> countless planetary uh, orbs and and that's all been in the last 500 years what are the cultural implications of of space exploration or are there any that come to mind i mean you you can think of kind of the carl sagan blue dot but but I'm I'm interested if there are, are any social or psychological implications to the next fifty years of of space exploration or the next fifteen in your mind. I mean this uh, the significance of such an advance for our human race as a as a biological species may prove as a consequential consequential as a life moving from water to land four hundred million years ago. So. We not only like a humans who start to fly. When we start to move to space, and finally, either like a dude, like the orbital station where people start to leave, or maybe move to the Mars or to the Moon, it's a new step for human race as a biological species, like as to to move to the new new element to space. It can have like a, a lot of like implications for some people. Can imagine people who is like, for example, handicapped on the Earth. In zero gravity, they can live a different life also, you know? And actually, like, a, it's look like for human health, it would be interesting experience living, like, a day in a little bit higher gravity. So you don't need actually exercise. You're just by moving, having exercises. And then sleep on a little bit lower gravity. So in this case, you have, like, much better the quality of the night rest. So in the future, the space stations with a different gravity, depending on how far you are from center of the rotation, can be very interesting place to live just because it's a more physiological for the humans mm, wow like a wellness retreat in space to uh, to a completely different order of magnitude yep and for for listeners the uh, the carl sagan blue dot i don't know if it was if it was uh him that that i know that he's his rhetorical kind of poem on the blue dot uh is it, youtube but it's it's phenomenal and it really puts in perspective how tiny this little speck uh, of our of our planet is. I'll, I'll op- open it there if there's any other psychological kind of implications or or social implications for space travel. Um, but I also want to talk a little bit about Mars and and SpaceX's mission there. Yeah, I mean, another psychological implications when humans will be in space and when we look back to Earth, we will not see any bound borders, boundaries, the countries. We just see the Earth. And uh, maybe we will find another way how people can live with each other, the another political way. Another, like, a, in, maybe it will reduce all the divisions between the people. Because now the countries kind of occupied every, like, each part of the of the Earth's surface and say, hey, now here is, like, a United States, here is Europe, Russia. And like we we make a decision where people can live, and it's like a dividing the people. So then, when the humanity will move to the space, maybe eventually we don't need all these like countries, <laughs> all these like political societies. Maybe we'll find another way how humans can interact with each other and create a new new political structures. Yeah, it's from I mean everything that we've talked about from communications and information technology to to energy production to resource uh, accumulation. It's, it's almost like space is the metaphorical and literal 
embodiment of of abundance and especially if you can combine those things to to a these massive structures that uh, can feed on their own energy consumption it's it's almost like you can have these yeah these massive spaces these massive structures in space that um that are not only just cost neutral um but actually just generating revenue to where it is i mean generating revenue on a scale that we've never seen before to where it's it actually could become cost effective and actually cheap to be able to go visit these places uh within within a few decades or maybe it's maybe that's a little too optimistic maybe it's 50 to 100 years out but it's if you connect all of these different threads in which you're touching on this isn't this it doesn't seem like it's this thing that is so far and away expensive and uh, something that only a few can enjoy it actually seems like they combine to where the masses could actually participate in in this uh, this new frontier it will be faster than we can expect it will be much faster uh, when Thomas Jefferson bought Louisiana from Napoleon the Great he wrote in his diary that this was the most beautiful like a uh, you know like purchase expansion of the territory for the young United States. But he, he wrote that probably it will take thousand years for people to populate it. Uh, but actually it happened less in less than one, life of one generation. And uh, two things like it changed everything. The one, it was the gold rush in California that created such an incentive for people to move. And it's thousands and dozens and hundreds of thousands people moved. In a search of like a uh, of like money of treasure, but this created this huge motivation, and also then later uh, invention of railroads that basically make the all US accept, uh, accessible, and we will see the same in space. It will be much faster than we can expect for two reasons. Again, because now we know that we can build a very cheap railroads with what the SpaceX is doing, which with what hopefully will. Blue Origin, other companies will be doing, and for in space transportation, what we are doing in Momentus. And 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 I want to touch on what Momentus does for listeners, but uh, but keep going. These low cost transportation will unleash the human creativity and entrepreneurial ideas, and people will come with uh, hundreds and thousands of different ideas how to use the space. When I started my first company in aerospace more than ten years ago. The entry ticket was several million dollars just to test something in space. And now I see that our customers and some of them pretty amazing company who is doing like, a, you know, very cool things. And I see that they can start the business and test some ideas with just, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars, not with dozens or like millions of dollars, but a few, few hundred thousands. So this entry barrier unleashes human creativity because the most powerful thing that we have like among us, like among humans, this is our creativity and our entrepreneurial people who can take a risk, who can look to the like, future and try the different, different things. Zooming out, do you mind giving listeners a, a little breakdown of what Momentus does and y'all's narrow edge of the wedge into the space exploration space? Yeah, I mean, we are entering in the time when the main way how you fly from Earth to space will be the big and huge rockets. As I told before, uh, we are living on the top of on the, on the bottom of the gravity well, so we have this tyranny of the gravity. And uh, 
just like a mathematics tell that the larger the rocket, the smaller of proportion of the mass of the structure to the mass of the propellant. And you can lift more proportionally when you build the larger rockets. And and now like a humans are building larger and larger rockets. Even like a Falcon 9, which is kind of not huge rocket, but it's three times larger than Soyuz. Falcon Heavy even larger. Starship will be capable to deliver hundreds of tons of uh, cargo in space. But then when you are and already how, in how space... Big, how big was the Falcon 9? Falcon 9 can deliver up to 15 to 20 tons in a different orbits. And uh, Starship between 100 and 150 tons. So it's huge. It but how, huge. how large how large of a, of a rocket is uh, the Falcon 9 uh, how, in total with just the size like uh, in terms of feet for people to conceptualize? Yeah, it's a it's a like a multi-store building. It's a dozens of meters. It's a half a thousand tons. It's a big rocket, and uh, uh, Starship will be it will be gigantic. It will be huge, colossal rocket, like thousands of tons, like a huge sky sky skyscraper, uh, like a big building. But will be capable to uh, move uh, hundreds of tons of the of the cargo or or hundreds of people in a people in the same flight. But then when you're in space, actually rocket, the chemical rockets, is not the best way to fly because you're already like a, in orbit and the chemical propulsion is good to fly from the Earth because it's a high thrust, but not very high efficiency. So you need to have the different uh, means of transportation in space if you want to do it in the most efficient way. You need to have like a also the new business model by and using this hub and spoke model, so you can lift with the big rockets a lot of cargo in the same like initial parking orbit, and then use like a smaller vehicles to provide this last mile delivery, either in a different low orbits or flying to higher orbits to the moon. And we are building this hub and spoke model, so we're building in space transfer vehicles or space tags that can lift that can uh, take dozens like tons eventually maybe dozens of tons of the cargo and fly with this from low orbit to high orbits or just change the orbit and uh, to make it efficient and cheap it would be kind of like uh, an airplane landing at lax and then you take an uber to your last mile destination yep 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 and uh, and to build it in the most efficient way and provide the service uh, very cheaply we change also the paradigm of the propulsion system. So uh, we use what we call electrical propulsion. So we use solar energy to heat the propellant. And uh, as a propellant, we use just simple water. Uh, we just heat the water up to very high temperature. It's like a sun surface. And uh, these superheated gas, like almost plasma, it's ejects through the nozzle and expand and create a thrust. And because we use water, we can build it extremely cheap. But uh, also, eventually, we can use water from, from the moon, from asteroids. So at some moment, we don't need actually to have a propellant from the Earth. And this is a, uh, our like business, and I, it's extremely important for future exploration in space because you cannot solve all the challenges only with rockets. You need like a way how you fly from one orbit to another. And sometimes it's even harder than from Earth because flying from low orbit to the moon you need almost the same energy like flying from the Earth to low orbit. And uh, if eventually you can use water from the moon, it will be so much simpler, so much cheaper, and so much efficient. Walk me through that last part. Why? Like, How would it work? 
And why would that be much cheaper than just loading it up with? And your rockets are only about uh, like three feet in comparison, right? So much smaller. It depends. Like we start with a small uh, vehicle. Uh, our smallest vehicle, it's bigger, right? It can lift a few hundred kilograms. But we definitely, we are building much larger vehicles, like Arderite, Ferberite, that will be capable to move dozens of tons. will be large vehicles uh, that can move dozens of tons in, in space. And uh, yeah, we, we, we are starting to fly our small vehicle this year. Actually, we are flying this December with SpaceX. And we are flying four times next year with the customers to different orbits. Uh, but we are building, uh, we are developing now much larger vehicle that can like uh, move big stuff in space also. Okay, thank you for the the uh, little sidebar on Momentus. And and I think listeners will be able to see why I, I, I find it really compelling as an investor to be able to invest in the last mile delivery of, of payloads. I do want to touch on uh, Mars real quick. I have never really understood the the commercial implications of Mars, and I'll tell you tell you why. But I, but first, I want to know what is the grand vision of of SpaceX for and Elon Musk really um, for Mars, and and what is the commercial application of of that that vision? Uh, part of me just thinks it's a sci fi dream. And and there's commercial implications all around it on the way there, and and uh, we talked about the satellite technology and the the uh, reusable rockets and things like that. But specifically with Mars as a vision, why as as uh, Elon Musk has said, because it's badass. Why is it so badass? I, I've always struggled to understand why getting to Mars and populating Mars is so badass. You know, Mars is a single planet that potentially can be inhabited by, by humans and solar system. Maybe some moons of, uh, of planet giant eventually, but it's much colder over there. But, you know, maybe some Titan or some, some moons can, can be the next goal. But Mars is definitely one of the most obvious goals and targets for uh, human uh, to be there because it's uh, close to the sun. It's not far from the Earth. The environment there, it's hostile, but not as hostile like in the Venus or Mercury. Uh, you have water on, on the Mars. You have like the carbon dioxide, so you can build a kind of economy. And our motivation as a humans, as a human race, it's not only, you know, the logical. So, I mean, we make a lot of motivations because of our exploration spirit. And uh, this is very important. This is like what people underestimate. When it was a great time of the great geographical discoveries, people was moving to another continent, to another world, not only because they wanted to find another good place to live, it's because it's nature of humans. And uh, you don't need to find like an economical sense to go to Mars and maybe mine some materials. It's not necessary. I mean, when you play with a computer game or when you read a nice book, you're actually generating GDP you're generating like value because you as a human made a decision, you know, to play this computer game or watch this movie or, you know, read this book. So somebody created it and it's created stuff. So if a large number of the people will decide to move to the Mars and live there and just like continue what they've been doing on Earth, like maybe writing, you know, software or inventing stuff or, you know, uh, making art or something like this, the fact that they move there and spend money for this and spend part of their 
you know, savings and, and start to generate like a GDP there will be enough. So it depends uh, if we as a humans will be ready for this move. And uh, Elon believe yes, and I think yes, I mean like we we as a humans we, we have this like a desire to to expand and to move and we have a certain percentage of the people who are ready to go to the like, hardship and uh, live their life in a difficult but extremely exciting way and be on these frontiers of human race. Okay. All right. Well, the you know, what goes through my my mind when I think about it is, and I'll just rifle off some questions that, I, that I've never had someone answer. So I, I'd love to use the opportunity with you. Is, um, but I also don't want to make you defend someone else's vision. But when it when it comes to you know populating Mars, why couldn't we populate the moon first? But also, you know, between Mars and the moon, whatever uh, terraform and and environmental challenges there would be for uh, just logistical challenge to make that inhabitable, it feels like as bad as Earth gets could get environmentally speaking. Over the next 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 years, it still would be much easier, logistically speaking, to make Earth more ha- habitable than, than starting from scratch in, in something like Mars. Or going in a different direction, why not just build a spatial structure that just exists on its own in space versus... Um, versus you know populating mars so i'm throwing a few questions at you but would love for you to attack them or or just leave them as something that elon musk would need to answer yeah it's a definitely interesting discussion and i think it will be competition between idea to build permanent structure in space uh, because in these structures you can make a gravity in a way so you can fly back to earth but if you for example like it will be the permanent settlement in in, in the moon or in the mars with the people who is living there all their life, they will not be able to fly back to Earth because of gravity, because they will not be able. I mean, after many years and maybe after generations, they will lose the capability to live in a high gravity like on Earth. And uh, I agree that Moon will be probably the first the first uh, destination. And uh, on the Moon, like, uh, like we probably will find the good places to build these like, settlements. It will be the lava tubes. Uh, it's a good protection from radiation. It's a, a good protection from these temperature differences. Some lava tubes close to the to the poles, close to the water depot. In Mars, also, uh, it will be some lava tubes. Uh, and the main challenge in in all these planets is definitely radiation, because you don't have uh, radiation belts. You don't have the atmosphere like on Earth that protect us. To build the atmosphere on Mars would be very hard, not only because to melt all this like a carbon dioxide and, and ice will be difficult, but then you need to protect it. Otherwise, it will be blown again by by sun, uh, solar wind. So you need to create artificial artificial uh, magnetic field. Uh, so can you imagine like a, to to make at least superconductive cables uh, around the Mars to create the field to protect? Eventually, it can be it can happen, but it's uh, probably hundreds hundreds of years. So people just initially will, will live in a, you know, like protected environment without changing the entire planet climate. My uh, prognostication is that I don't think anyone will go to Mars. And the reason would be if you have the choice, and I'm just thinking about thinking about this out loud right now, but it's like a Blu-ray effect. 
where you have DVDs, which are better than VHS. So people make the jump. But as soon as Blu-ray starts to become this new convention, that's you know more or less a co- commercial convention to get people to buy the next new platform paradigm, it happens at the same time that you also have you know streaming taking off, and and that just is a better decision. And so people, you know, the, I'm sure it was many people's vision to bring out the uh, and many companies thinking, okay, Blu-ray is the next paradigm but then streaming just wins wins out because it's it's just logistically much better and if you are thinking about going to mars if you are in that human exploratory uber exploratory bucket of of the population i think just the notion that by the time you got to mars or by the time you're stuck there that there's this you know space station this uh massive mega space station that everyone actually goes to, then you'd be like, oh, fuck, well, now I'm stuck on Mars and no one's coming here anymore. So I made a bad decision. And if that is just just hypothetically the the fork in the road between exploring Mars or exploring a the potential you know mega structure in space you're going to have those people say you know what i'm going to wait wait this out i'm going to see where this is going and and i think the mega structure will start to win out as you know just a a figment of imagination and 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 the destination of creation to the point that all of those people are going to say yeah i don't you know that's a pretty worse that's a terrible worst case scenario being stuck on mars that no one then goes towards um, and all resources go towards the the structure in space. R- random thoughts out loud, but that seems like where it'll actually go if you have that decision in your mind, if you are in that you know uber exploratory bucket of of the population. Yeah, I agree. I mean, um, it sounds like a mega structure in space with a different gravity environment, with a zero gravity in the center of these rotating structures, with a enough high gravity so you can fly back to Earth and you don't need to stack forever, it will be maybe more lucrative. But you never know. Like, human sentiments is very, like, unlogical thing. So it can become, like, a important for the entire generation, for millions of the people move to the Mars because it's just like another planet and we want to colonize it. We want to explore it. We want to make it habitable. Because we are living in a very geologically uh, violent planet, and and uh, the high probability that next few thousand, maybe dozens of thousand years, there will be some event that can bring like human civilization back, like to the dark ages, can 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 like kill most of the humans with all these super volcanoes, you know, the climate change, asteroids, everything can happen. I want to also tell you, you have one of the most fascinating founder stories I have ever come across. So I wanted, I want to turn the lens to you real quick, just because I know it's going to be fascinating for, for listeners to hear. Do you mind tell one of the questions that I love to ask folks on the podcast is tell me three stories that have helped shape who you've become mm-hmm. professionally, mm-hmm. personally, could be any time in your life. Um, your accent, you're obviously, you're obviously not from Chicago. Do you mind giving listeners a little bit of insight into your life, into starting Momentous, and and three stories that help shape who you've become? I think the first my my first story is about my childhood and what made me, what made made my you know like life goal and aspiration. So, and I was born in a small Mongolian village in Siberia, 
not far from the place where Genghis Khan started his conquest. And we had no sanitation in the house and almost no electricity. So as I began my education, I had to study by the light of kerosene lamp. But quite early, I realized that I love and I'm good at science and math. And already at, at 14, I decided to become a space engineer. I spent like days and weeks in a library. I remember the time when I first read about the Voyager. And it was a time when Voyager was approaching Jupiter and Saturn. So I, it was such a, you know, fascinating for me. Living in this like small village, you know, in a, in a rural house somewhere and, 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 and looking for this, the creature that was created by human wisdom, by, by, by humans approaching to the further, further side of the solar system. It was uh, really like a big like a shock for me as a kid. So I decided to become a space engineer. And I still have this like interview with a local newspaper back in 1993 when I was saying that I want to study advanced propulsion technologies. I dream about the future where I can be the part of space exploration and may even fly to Mars. So it was like almost 30 years ago. And I think this is the first story that I came back to space after 25 years, after doing business in the different industries and the different stuff after studying like in university. But I still remember this my first feeling as a kid when I was opening this like uh, pictures of this planet giants. So I call myself a Voyager generation and uh, this was my, 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 my first. So the second story, I was like doing pretty well in the business. So I created a lot of companies. At the same time, I was involved in a, especially when Putin came into power in a political political activity. Uh, from beginning of 2000s, I was uh, helping initially create the Open Russia Foundation. It was like a, created by the guy who spent them 10 years in prison, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, for his like beliefs. So I created the uh, this open Russia Foundation Siberia. Why? Why did he spend ten years in? Why did he spend ten years in prison? He spent ten years in prison uh, because he was one of the most vocal critics of the Putin, and Putin was like a, afraid of him because he was a wealthy guy, billionaire. So he put him in prison, I believe, in two thousand three, and he left the prison just before the Olympic game. And then when I moved to Moscow from Siberia, I also for many years was helping to. Un- anti-Putin opposition, and then uh, financially and all this way. So finally, finally, uh, it basically destroyed my last company, my first space company created in Russia. It was like a pretty traumatic experience because I, I built this company and was and I spent a lot of like a time and passion and soul and money. And uh, the, especially after Crimea, after 2014, situation became so bad that basically they started criminal investigation against us and pushed pushed company down to the bankruptcy and me out of country but uh, I don't regret about this what what year was this it was 2014 2015 when they basically wiped the company out uh, I don't regret about this uh, what happened to your mentor when he got out of prison in, in 2013 to Mikhail Khodorkovsky he was out uh, they basically let him leave the country let uh, so he's living now in, in London. I was like uh, involved in a several like, opposition movement and helping. 
is my small money, but also with some some political activity. Um, for me, it was a big, like a personal kind of tragedy what happened with Russia for the last 10 years, for the last, I would say, already 20 years. Uh, because definitely I, I like, come to the 90s and I was like, we, we were all dreaming of Russia becoming a European country, like Western country. And uh, we spent so much uh, energy. It's like we spent our life. So when you move uh, to another country, when you're almost 40 years old, it's hard. You basically start another life. Uh, it's not like you're moving when you're a student. It's everything is different. So it was like a hard decision for me to move to United States. Uh, but finally, it was the right decision. And uh, I also don't regret that I was uh, participating and still like, participating like on this anti-Putin activity because, I mean, people need to have a voice. And I think this is a, this is important. Even if you, if you be punished for this, even if you lose something out of this. But, and less people doing this is more important. Right. Well, I say, I say right, but I'm, I'm, I'm just basically saying, yeah, I can't even tell you what's going through my mind because I'm saying right as if it's like the, just a social convention to continue the conversation. But Good God, it's um, that is a choice of I have have yet to make, which is to put uh, my entire life and livelihood on the line for something that that I believe in. So I I don't really know what that is like, um, but 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 keep going. Yeah, and the short story when I moved to the United States, I mean, I think this was the very good and right decision, and I like. And I love this country. I love the Bay Area and the California and the opportunity. Um, it's, uh, it's it, as I told, it was not easy. Not easy, not only because uh, when you immigrate in this like age, it's like you start your life over. Uh, it's also we came in a hard political time where Russian was not welcomed, and this is like usually periods in every country life when you know, like uh, sometimes you don't like Irish. You know, Jewish, and then, you know, like uh, Arabic, now like Russian, maybe Chinese. So, and uh, I'm living here already like uh, six, seven years. And I tell you, like, uh, being Russian here, especially this business is hard. Like, uh, you feel it everywhere. We have several customers who just say, hey, we don't want to work with you because you are Russian. Just like openly, you know. (laughs) Or like, uh, I had an account with my previous company, Silicon Valley Bank, and after 2014, they said, okay, we want to close all your accounts because you're Russian. We don't work with Russians. And after I was like, come through this long immigration process, it was like a, such a difficult disaster, like for many years with the best like attorneys. And then finally I end up in immigration prison, in ICE prison. Kind of humiliating. Uh, and uh, and uh, it's an interesting experience. Uh, it's uh, actually created. When, when was this? It was like some time ago. Yeah. So it's, give me some humility because I've been the only kind of European white guy in a bus, chained, chuckled, and in a prison. So, but then you feel like uh, you are like the same, like everybody, and uh, you don't have the full authority on your life. Uh, it was hard, uh, but uh, it was a very good and life-transformative uh, experience. And in Russia, we are Russians. We are usually quite, I would say, like uh, on a more conservative side. Uh, and I am comparing with every Russian was very liberal, very liberal, but still on American standard, <laughs> I like, I, I'd rather more on the conservative side. 
but uh, I think this life life gave me kind of unique experience with all this like a uh, uh, stuff and uh, and uh, helped me to create this like a more humility and passion and you know so um, eventually I think it was like a good experience for me but uh, somehow hard so I feel now like when it's happening with the with Afro American people I feel it I just feel it personally. Can't imagine what that what that's been like the last twenty years of pushing against a system that is that is actively and, and ultimately pushes you out of the country, and and you find yourself okay, you know, a entrepreneurial refugee here in the U.S., but also um, being discriminated against here. Yeah, you have you've certainly made the absolute best of it from immigration prison to the visionary founder of one of the most innovative uh, companies in, in in the valley right now what would be uh, the third story that's helped shape who you've become you know like uh, the overall like uh, our entrepreneurial life it's a uh, it's a life of failures i mean and uh, you basically to make a success you have like a series of failures and i have like expressions for who is an entrepreneur this is a person who can live through the failures and don't lose the belief what he is doing and continue doing it. Momentus is my, it's a company number five in space that I found it. In some respect, like all previous company was either failures or partial failures. The first one was with Dalia, which basically was wiped out by Russian government. Then another company was not fully failure, but we sold it on a very early stage to EcoStar. It was kind of good deal, but I mean, definitely we plan to build something larger and we just overestimated the market and uh, uh, the same happened with another company which is still in the market but you know it's dozens of the people but was not become like a company big enough to you know fuel my my ambitions to build something valuable in space and with momentos i i feel that we we have a extremely like interesting uh, uh situation we have a market we have a good technology we have a good team but you need time like you need to build stuff and don't give up and don't give up because we see the more failures in our life as an entrepreneur than like uh, most of the people. And uh, these failures everywhere with uh, raising money, with the uh, customers. But then when you look uh, backward, you see that all these failures pile together and actually create the, this like a soil for success, final success. And uh, it's important. Even if finally you fail, you create this like a fertile soil for other people to, to make success. Make them successful. Absolutely, absolutely. I think it is. Uh, you know, the entrepreneurial pursuit has no destination, and and therefore, you know, failure is. It's that's the destination that you decide to uh, you know stick around, and rather than keep moving through. Last question that I have for you, Mikhail, is what is something you think a lot about? but you rarely get a chance to talk about. And this can be on any front. Um, knowing you for a few years, it's, uh, I know that you think deeply on uh, across many different, many different fronts, um, but what is something you think a lot about professionally or personally and rarely get a chance to talk about? Yeah, definitely I'm thinking a lot about the space and professional stuff, but this is the kind of cool stuff that people always asking and we're talking about this. You know, another things like uh, what 
what will be the next with the you know this like a humanity and with the development of like the society it's a we are as a humans enter into a very interesting but very challenging uh period of our life so next 10 20 years we will come through such a dramatic changes in the way how we are living with all this like a robotization with artificial intelligence with the self-driving stuff so maybe 20 percent maybe 30 percent of uh of the current like job occupations will be not will be not demanded by economy anymore and uh, how society can come through this and what we can do in order not to create actually close society because i lived in the soviet union and i saw and i remember how bad was to build a like a country based on a wrong incentive and wrong like a feeling about the human nature. What I feel that we are like as a you know humanity in the countries, United States specifically, we are coming to this uh, age when uh, the prevailing thing will be isolationism and it will be extremely like a tough version of uh, isolation because this is what people would want because it will be 20-30% of the people that don't have like a job and they say hey we don't want migration we don't want other people we want the government to help us and support us and what answers we as humans will find uh, either we just you know will be led by you know the the belief in the bad uh, uh, side of the human uh, human nature or we will address this like on a good side of the human nature and rather unleash creativity and uh, basically helping people to find the new ways. This is like a hard. So I uh, I think that like we're in a very challenging but interesting time and we can see in our life in the next like 10, 20 years, huge social changes. And uh, US as a one of the most beautiful countries in the in the world, built on these like ideas of the freedom of the of the like economic freedom of uh, uh, liberal ideas. It can change also. And uh, by by watching this like it's a uh, so definitely worry me what's what's happening, uh, but I still think this is a place where we can find the good answers for all humanity. Yeah, God willing, yeah, I hope so. It is. We certainly have, in terms of a national landscape, have one of the best opportunities, environments for that. I mean, even in the midst of of what can be seen as chaos, you know, conflict on on one level is harmony on another. You can have you can have your you know white blood cells attack in a and of infection and and that's harmony for the ecosystem i think the protests in in may and june um for racial equality and for the disavowment of of police brutality is that is that is harmony when you zoom out that that we can have that these types of mass protests mass uh you know volume around something that we care a lot about you fast forward five years and likely good will come from it even though in the moment it seemed it seemed like uh, chaos or conflict Mikhail, well thank you so much for for your generosity of of time and and wisdom in this in this uh, entire realm of of space tech where can people find out more about you and momentus i mean definitely on the momentus website momentus.space and uh, in in my like a page in facebook and linkedin we, we use the social networks like, to share our opinion and, and Facebook more like I use for kind of my Russian friends, LinkedIn for 
US. So you can find me there. Well, thank you, Mikhail. Thank you so much for the, uh, like I said, the, the generosity and wisdom and time. And uh, I am looking forward to, investor aside, I'm looking forward to the really big things for Momentus coming up, especially with December's uh, collaboration with, with SpaceX. Thank you again, and I hope to have you back in a few years to see how the space uh, has developed and, and if it's on the track that, that we covered today within this, uh, this. I mean, we covered so many different things with regards to the space gold rush. I'm sure there are going to be some large developments in the next few years that will tell us if, uh, if it was right or not. Thank you again. Thank you, James. Thank you. So long. Friends and listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to hear more of these types of conversations, go over to your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe or leave us a review. Good or bad, we love hearing from people that that appreciate this type of conversation and want more of it. You can also follow us on Twitter at GoBelowTheLine, as well as see in our Twitter bio our email address for you to shoot us a note on any suggestions of guests or topics that we should cover. We read every single one. So thank you for those that have already sent those in. That's it for us today. We will see you next time on Below the Line. Below the Line is brought to you by Straight Up Podcasts.